This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Tell you just a word about my approach. I count myself blessed to have been trained, brought up in the tradition of St. Thomas Aquinas. And so I try to do philosophy like he did. He very much was, you can say, in a tradition as regards philosophy that goes back to the Greeks. And you know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle really stand out there. Christians have said pretty much all along, and there seems to have been a great gift, as it were, a divine dispensation, whereby the, there was a special insight, great success in using the light of natural reason they're among those amazing Athenians. And so they're, of course, the ones who coined the term philosophy. And so I try to philosophize with their spirit, which I think Christianity then took up and is very much exemplified in St. Thomas Aquinas. How did they see wisdom? Pardon me, philosophy, the love of wisdom. And so it, I think it's important to note one can do philosophy one can study philosophy and not necessarily do it with the same spirit as these men. One can study it and take it as an area of expertise, but it doesn't necessarily mean that one is pursuing wisdom. And so I just want to say that I try to see it as pursuing wisdom. It's about coming to know the truth. I have confidence, as they did, that our reason can come to know fundamental truths. It still has to be approached with great humility. And we always have to be very much aware, as you know, Socrates made very clear of recognizing what we don't know, but nonetheless, to move forward with confidence that we can see certain key truths. When it comes to this astounding topic, I never tire of going back to it again and again and again. Why? Fundamentally, most obviously, because it's changed my life. And I've been teaching these things for, well, probably a little longer than you all have been alive. And I've seen it change people's lives. And I'm convinced that that is so because the fundamental insights are true. That's why I'm so interested to share it with you today. This to me is not fundamentally an historical exercise. It's an exercise in trying to discern what ultimately is an astounding plan originating in the generosity of a creator for what human flourishing looks like. So with, with, with that friendship for young adults, a practical Thomistic approach. So I'm gonna do three things. I'm first going to especially think with Aristotle and then take a close look at the situation that I'll say we slash you are in today and think about why young adults especially need friendship. After that, I wanna give a few basic principles from Aristotle slash St. Thomas Aquinas on virtuous friendship. And then finally, make some suggestions as to how young adults might then go about trying to apply these principles in your life. So very simple progression of three, again, looking at why young adults especially need friendship, basic principles of virtuous friendship, and then I'm gonna make some suggestions for you to make a plan if you're interested in trying to put these into practice in your life. 
I'm, I'm going to be referring uh, occasionally to the to the handout. If you don't have the handout in your hand, that is okay. But the the opening uh, several quotations are from the the amazing opening paragraph of Book Eight of the Nicomachean Ethics. So we're going to give you a little bit of basic Aristotle here. Nicomachean Ethics is a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece in the principles of a good human life. Of the 10 books, people are very often surprised to find the two of the 10, really more space than any other specific subject matter, two of the 10 are devoted to friendship. Clearly, Aristotle sees friendship as at the epicenter of human flourishing. There is no such thing as human flourishing apart from friendship and not just any friendship, a specific kind of friendship. And he opens in the, the first paragraph to, it's, it's, it's really a tour de force of pointing out why all persons, no matter where they are in life, need friendship. Very famous line right in the opening um, lines of, the, of that book eight is my quotation number one, for without friends, no one would choose to live, though he had all other goods. But very, very powerful assertion. Without friends, no one would choose to live. Though he had all other goods. I'm going to just kind of let that sink in. I'm not going to seek to defend it. He doesn't seek to defend it. I think he, he is thinking that this will become evident upon our reflection upon it. And what he goes on to do in the rest of the paragraph is refer to different positions one might be in life. The wealthy, the poor, the young, the old, the prime of life. And he has a very brief statement as to no matter where you are, no matter what, you need to have friendship in your life. Just a couple of them here, the second, second quotation. And in poverty and misfortunes, Men think friends are the only refuge. Not our topic, but you think about that for a moment, if you would. In poverty and misfortunes, and of course, there's different kinds of poverty. We're all subject to misfortunes. In poverty and misfortunes, men think friends are the only refuge. Goes on, those in the prime of life it stimulates to noble actions, quote, two going together. For with friends, men are more able to think and to act. Now, were you in the context of, 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 of studying the Nicomachean ethics when you would hear that little duo there of thinking and acting that would make you naturally think of his intellectual virtues and moral virtues? And so in so many words, that's Aristotle's way of saying, and in the prime of life, when you're not going to talk about you're being poor, you're having misfortunes, you're prime of life where you wouldn't have thought maybe that you would need other people. Then two, especially you want to have, you need to have two walking together to work together in the intellectual virtues and the moral virtues. And then the very interesting line, um, it helps the young, too, to keep from error. Now, uh, so in the name of Aristotle, I might be a, a, a little bit uh, trigger warning. This you, you might feel a little offended, okay? 
of, uh, gosh, what does Aristotle think of youth? Aristotle has some very specific thoughts on youth, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. But here, he just, that, that's his one line there on youth as regards why they need friendship. It helps the young two to keep from error. And I'd like, I'm going to invite you to think about that with me. Is this offensive? Or is this a helpful view of youth? I, I move now in, into more specifically what I said was going to be the first of my three parts of thinking about youth and why they need friendship. Today, I suggest for your consideration, we have in our society broadly something of a cult of youth. We bemoan youth when it is past. We extol youth as you know, this is where people are living. This is where you want to be. And I suggest to you that that is indicative of a fundamentally different scale of values that our society has than from how Aristotle and the broader tradition are thinking. Consider this. If you think that most important in life are things like bodily pleasures, then it's, that is going to make a very big difference on how you compare old age and youth. That came up at the beginning, the very opening of the Republic, which I hope you've had occasion to read. And that's one of the big things they asked Socrates, well, how is old age for you? And then we get different views of old age. Some people are just going to find old age annoying. Look at our society and how we think of growing old. I give you a different scale of values to consider. What if highest in your scale of values are moral character, wisdom, and deep relationships? What if highest in your scale of values are moral character, wisdom, and deep relationships? If that is your starting point of what you most of all value in human life, think how differently you will compare youth and being older. Indeed, will you not look at the aging process as the great opportunity that life gives you to grow in that which is most important? And indeed, you, you look forward to that and you prize that. I present for your consideration, that's a treasure of Western civilization and really any great civilization. It certainly is deeply biblical of reverence the hoary head. That there's something to aging that at least tends to bring with it, should bring with it, we hope brings with it, a deepening in the most important things. And so it's certainly not something to be bemoaned, even if there are certain sufferings that come along with it. Indeed, with, with may I say, what I think is the better scale of values, the things, the pains and suffering that come with old age are little to endure in comparison with the deeper things that one will have had the opportunity to cultivate. And so the, already we start to see, hmm, we 
think about youth very differently than Aristotle did. Let's look a little more closely at how youth are challenged. I think you could say this transculturally, transhistorically, I'm going to say a little something more about, I think, a couple challenges of youth culture, given that in our society we kind of idolize youth and build a youth culture that kind of dominates all of society. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But just more generally, through Aristotle's eyes, youth are challenged, they always have been, by the nature simply of being young, by their inexperience, first of all, and then by their challenge as regards their passions. Let's talk about inexperience for a moment. If we look at life in terms of fundamentally growing, trying to grow in wisdom, there is a deeper wisdom that can be had. Remember, always keeping that proper balance, confidence that can be had, but the humility and honesty to recognize this can be very difficult to grow in wisdom. In other words, it's gonna take a long time. So inexperience is always a disadvantage, not just in the simple practical things of life, the one who's just an apprentice rather than a journeyman is some craft, inexperience there obviously is a disadvantage. But in the deeper kinds of knowledge in life, youth will always necessarily be, well, not, shall we say, behind or have a long way to go. And so that, I think, seen in a good light, in the proper light, would lead to certain attitudes and dispositions that we can come back to later. Now, the passions. At the beginning of the Nicene Ethics, Aristotle makes a very interesting point about studying ethics, and he includes in that politics, because politics is a part of ethics for Aristotle, is not suitable for the young. Now, exactly what he means by the young, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter in terms of setting a, a, in, an age, but he gives us the key thing to think in terms of. Why is it not, it, are they not really ready to study ethics yet? In short, he says, because the youth, the young, tend to live by their passions, not so much by the guidance of reason. I think if we look at that honestly, we'd see there's much to that. It's, it's not just the simple, um, obvious thing of especially the sexual passions that obviously run high in youth. There's a broad range of passions. In Aristotle's view, this is central to his anthropology, it's central to his ethics. Life is a key aspect of the project of life is putting order into your passions. Again, this takes time. Passions in youth are running high and they have not yet had the life experience and the habituation, the communal support, etc., to really form the deeper habits of putting right order into their passions. And so they tend to be more volatile in how they act. When I'm teaching this to my undergrads, I, 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 I poke them a bit here and I say, well, just kind of, you know, picture, is Aristotle being unfair? You know, picture a lot of Saturday nights, you know, kind of around the college campus. 
And just broadly speaking, is Aristotle way wide of the mark when he says young people tend to follow their passions as opposed to of a Saturday evening say to themselves, hmm, what would be the most rational thing to do this evening? Right? So you get some sense of what Aristotle means about the youth. And then, of course, he, he, he comes along with the zinger of saying, and of course, such youth is not always simply a matter of age. In other words, there are a number of human persons that will remain young in character, even though they are not young in age anymore. So we have a general inexperience, lack of opportunity yet to have grown in wisdom and understanding the deeper things. We have kind of unruly passions and not really having had the opportunity to develop the moral virtues yet. A couple of the things then I want to quickly note about specifically youth culture today. I think you'll kind of feel the power of these and we don't need to spend a lot of time explaining them and I'm going to move on. Youth culture today tends to emphasize seeking success over seeking moral character. Think for a moment. Think of your common um, college student, serious ones. And I'm not talking about the, you know, just the Don Juans or the, the ones that are just playboys. I mean, your normal college student, what, what are they focusing on? Have, is their minds not more focused on a, a, a notion of success that it, we could probably parse out and would have a, a number of characteristics kind of in common here of what, how one seeks success in our culture, rather than having a, a developed and serious sense of for, you know, at foremost in my life is I'm about trying to become a certain kind of person. So seeking success over seeking character. Crafting how one appears over crafting a good life. The obsession with appearance. I don't think that this is an unfair thing to point out. And the thing is, these things apply to all of us. In part, I think, because one angle through which to see it is, is we are all as social animals I think in humility, we need, all of us need to recognize we're more subject to the general currents and mores and customs of the, of the society in which we are, whether we are young or old, there's this kind of idolization of youth and these things that go along with it. Of course, there's so many concrete things. We're gonna circle back later and talk about technology a little bit. Always that kind of painful thing to talk about, kind of a gorilla in the room and our practices and technology and how this is encouraging us and enabling us in various ways to put a priority on crafting how I appear. Think of just a moment again about over social media. And I'm really going to encourage you in the spirit of Socrates, know thyself, know thyself, know thyself. No one can do it for you. Let's keep looking at ourselves and ask ourselves, to what extent do I, is this true of me that I, that I put a lot of energy into how are people going to see me? More energy than in who am I becoming? The assumption and acting out 
of the principle or the assertion that you can have the relationships you want simply by choosing them. This, I think, is, is a central feature of our youth culture. The assumption, the assertion, the conviction that, that there aren't any objective rules to what is required for you to have certain kinds of rich relationships. And it, that emphasis of kind of autonomy, freedom, self-expression, discovering yourself, being yourself, simply being authentic, then you'll be able to have good relationships of your choosing, of your kind. All of this specific or particularly strong in our youth culture today, in combination with the challenges, I think we're behind Aristotle saying in any case, it helps the young too to keep from error because the young would always have been more prone to that. We have an especially challenging situation. All right, a few quick points then about uh, virtuous friendship. Quick background in Aristotle. I'm gonna go back to that trio that I just referred to a little bit earlier. Moral character, wisdom, relationships. That right there is human happiness for Aristotle. Moral character, wisdom, good relationships. Fundamentally, that is the recipe. There's different ways you could put it, but that's a great trio of just saying that is what real objective human flourishing is. We are designed ultimately to be wise to live wisely unto being able to contemplate wisely and this together in very rich friendships and then more broadly community too, but I'd leave that aside for now. So, so I, I love just reminding ourselves of, this, of, of the astounding Aristotelian principle. To be virtuous is to be happy. This, 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 this pillar, this pillar of his worldview, like this pillar of reality that is absolutely rejected, lock, stock, and barrel rejected, that to be virtuous already is happiness is not the reward we get for being virtuous. Happiness is, I mean, happiness is not the reward we get for being virtuous. Happiness is in being virtuous. All right, that, that is the background. What, what is true friendship for Aristotle? A couple of key lines and we move on. They're so beautiful. If we just savor them as we say them. So really know and really be known. To really love and really be loved. And so to share a good life together. In a sense, true friendship, virtuous friendship can be put very, very simply in that way. We have a natural need, we have a natural inclination, indeed, need to know and to be known. I quickly suggest to you. When one starts to experience this friendship in its real depth, one begins to discover when I'm really known and really loved, I'm never alone. 
because I am known. How many are really known and really loved in a reciprocal situation where you can say that both of each and they live as it were one flourishing life together. This is the masterpiece, what Aristotle considers to be full friendship. There's other things you can call friendship. That is the real item. Which leads to two applications. Grow in virtue together and cultivate conversation and presence. Quick look at that, and then I'm going to turn to my practical suggestions. Friendship, you can say, in some sense, is, is about the daily meat and potatoes of, of true friendship, is helping one another grow in virtue. It can sound trite. It's so amazingly rich and so amazingly demanding and so amazingly fulfilling when we do it. What does it look like to really hold people accountable? Of course, you have to share fundamental principles. And we're going to come back to why Aristotle is well aware. The more he paints the picture of true friendship, the more it can seem that how will you ever find one? He's well aware of that. Life, no one ever said it was going to be simple. It's powerfully beautiful. And thus, in certain ways, it's a very arduous good. Find someone that you can truly hold one another accountable in growing in character. What an essential part of growing in who you are this is and how astoundingly few people experience it, of actually being in relationships where a genuine, rich, demanding Full person holding accountable is going on. That's true friendship. If there's not that going on to the extent that it's not to that extent, it is absolutely falling short of what he calls true friendship. The second one that I said was cultivating conversation and presence. I'm going to keep both of those words are really important. The word presence, I'm particularly going to come back to because in so many ways it's being undermined, but so, so is conversation. I, 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 I love just, just kind of looking at the, uh, turning it around before our eyes and thinking, what, what does he mean by rich conversation? Just and try to get some images of this. But of course, this is the demanding thing for all of us, as in most of the most important things in life. Only those who really understand who have begun to do it. And for the rest of us, it's hard to even get a picture or a concept of the thing in question. Maybe we just get a little bit of a taste from afar. What does real conversation look like? What does the conversation of true friends look like in an, in an age where conversation has been cheapened almost beyond imagining? It's hard even just to understand what he's talking about when he says, this is how human persons most of all live together, not as cattle feeding together in the same place, but as in sharing their minds in rich conversation. That's a paraphrase of Aristotle. 
and it's and it's in, in one of the quotations I'm not going to read you out loud that you have on your handout there. So so friendship is lived out, holding one another accountable. Sorry, and in seeking rich conversation, which of course is the richest way to really be present and together as human persons. I say this to you and I go on to my third and final part. I provoke you. This is what philosophy does. It makes us ask the hard questions. When human beings really, really are firing on all cylinders as it were, and they really wanna live together, they really love one another, what do they wanna do together? Not looking for anyone to raise a hand at the moment. How do human beings live together? This is, is a transcendently rich question. The simplest questions, Aristotle's the master of pointing you to things that are right before your eyes and, and, and calling us to think about them. In, in a day and age where people choose to, quote, live together for rather obvious and understandable, perhaps, reasons. Well, let's live together. You know, there's living together and there's living together. And boy, do people find that out by experience. What does it take to actually live together as human persons? That's the million dollar question. More than the million dollar question, it's the million dollar issue to enact. How do you become the kind of person who's capable of actually living together in a rich way with another human being? Many ways, that is the question of life. Applications. Well, first I'll start general, start at 30,000 feet, descending to make some particular suggestions for you. May I be a little bit in your face speaking to the young by saying, in view of the points that we just saw that are, are, are always apply to youth, a kind of inexperience, and then perhaps certain challenges as regards just underdeveloped character. In view of the inexperience, contrary to the spirit of our age, recognize as youth, we should be docile which as you know, is literally from the word that means teachable. We should be docile, which includes being humble enough to recognize we have not yet seen the key things of life that we need to see. We need wiser people to teach us and guide us. This flies in the face of the youth, of, of, of the creed of the youth culture that says, you know best, and no one can tell you better who you are than you. I'm giving you an alternative. There are others who better than you can tell you who you are and who you should be in the sense of who you can become. So to be docile to that and to be willing to study and to listen and to learn. In view of the character issues, to be hard on yourself in the good sense of hard on yourself, always under God's mercy and, and forgiveness. To be hard on the self of self-knowledge. 
We need to know where we are. We need to take a moral self-evaluation. Where do we need to grow in character? And we need to start to work on that because that's always going to be the necessary starting point. All right, so now let's start to get more specific in, 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 in some action steps. Again, move from more general to a little bit more specific. First of all, be intentional. This day and age, especially, be intentional and make a plan. Or if there's one thing you remember from, from this, I would hope it might be this. Good friendship, true friendship, never, ever, ever happens by accident. It comes to those who know what they're looking for and know how to go about forging it. It comes to the intentional. So we need to be intentional. And I'm going to go so far as to say, make, make a specific plan. I'd love to see you make certain resolutions, if I may be so bold with you. In view of these, these you couldn't make this stuff up. It's too good. It's too true. It's, a, it's, it's the truth of human nature. In the, view of, in the view of these truths of human nature, make a plan. May I suggest, first of all, a key part of that plan is going to be a chastity plan. I say of chastity, as I said of friendship, chastity never happens by accident. It comes to those who see the jewel that it is and go about seeking it. Sure, that might in in include and often will, getting up and starting again. But we go after it, and we go after it very intentionally. Remembering the chastity is always most fundamentally a yes. The no, the chastity says, is always in view of the yes to an astounding plan for love that in some form we are all called to. In all, is always better than we've yet realized. Interior ordering of passions and self-discipline is fundamentally a yes to the truth of the dignity of the human person and the glorious gifts of married love or ways of being spousal and a, and a mother and a father outside of marriage and other contexts, meaning non-biologically, the, the various and sundry ways we are all called upon to put order into this area of our life for the human good of ourselves and those around us. Chastity is always an essential and irreplaceable force, empowering relationships of all kinds. If you want an insight, if I may be so bold, into so much of the suffering of the age in which we live. There are no deeply authentic human relationships that are possible in the absence of chastity. Unchastity is always a destroyer of relationship at all levels. Not just, say, between a husband and a wife or between, between those who are unchaste vis-a-vis -vis one another. Let's go to the positive side. Chastity again, is always a force empowering us 
to live in more authentic relationships and to see people as they are and to treat them as they are. And remember, by the grace of God, we always can begin again. Okay. I recommend choosing one or two people with whom you can try to go deeper in true friendship. And the key here is discernment, discernment, discernment. I'm going to read you just a few lines under number seven on my handout from the great St. Alward, who wrote the great medieval treatise on spiritual friendship. I'm going to just read you a couple lines here. Too eager for friendship, he risks being deceived by its likeness, accepting false for true, feigned for real, and carnal for spiritual. So we have to be careful not to be too, too eager for friendship and leap before we're ready. It's all about discernment, discernment, discernment. I go on. Although attachment frequently precedes friendship, kind of a certain, this is, some things never change. You form an emotional attachment to somebody. And then, then that kind of clouds our judgment. And we don't discern rationally the way that we would have had we not already formed an emotional attachment. Although attachment frequently precedes friendship, it should never be followed unless reason guides, honesty moderates, and justice rules. I'm on the backside. Especially in choosing and testing a friend, we should take precautions, if possible, not to set our hearts too quickly. Boy, that's hard, and it takes self-discipline. I go on. Now, how many do I love to whom it would be indiscreet to bear my mind and open my heart in this way, since they are not old enough, mature enough, or discreet enough for such intimacies. This is a key line. Alred loves to say, Christian charity towards all, friendship with few, friendship in the richer, deeper sense. He is, he is pushing for given the nature that Aristotle saw, that Cicero saw, of the demands of this rich, virtuous kind of friendship. It can only be had with a few, and it can only be had with those that have a certain kind of character. What I like to say here is this is not about being judgmental. It's about living in the truth. I say to you again, if you're tempted to think you are being judgmental when you're looking around trying to discern with whom can I go deeper in friendship. When you're tempted to think I'm being illegitimately judgmental, I suggest rather say to yourself, it's not being judgmental. It's striving to live in the truth, the truth that these thinkers have seen philosophically and theologically of the demands of true friendship. You treat all, another, another way of putting it in Aristotelian terms, friendliness towards all, deep friendship with a few. Who are those one or two? And I say, I recommend thinking fundamentally in terms of, of the same sex with whom you are going to go deeper. The beautiful realm of the nuptial, of the spousal, of the romantic is something that, that the same sex friendship in the rich, meaningful way, is an appropriate preparation for. So choose someone with whom to go deeper. Build something positive together. Positive practices. Choose a couple, make them focused, and hold one another to it. A couple examples. We're embodied. It comes down to concrete things. Okay, more specific here. 
reading together, (laughs) reading together, especially deeper reading. Sure. Lighter reading too. Wholesome, rich activities, hikes, going to a classical music concert, helping the poor together, praying together. The, all, 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 these are just simple examples of profoundly human actions that, in, that are, are becoming more rare. They're becoming more rare. You perhaps know concretely more than I do how if you look at the common practice, but then again, it's maybe harder for you to notice because you have less to compare it to than I do of how young people especially spend their time together. And in general, the, 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 the shallow context in which they gather and thus the non-rich contexts to really be able to experience the going deeper in view of what Aristotle's talked about as it being that deeper, deeper kind of life sharing and conversation, certain kinds of contexts especially lend themselves to that. And honestly, I, when I first was making this list, I just wrote concert. And I realized I should put the word classical above it. I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm being serious when I say there's culturally uplifting things are a much richer way to be together than things that are not more culturally elevated the deeper the thing you look at together, the stronger a way it is of binding you together. Just two more and I'm done. Have a technology plan. My mantra is say no for the sake of saying yes. I go back to a couple of things I said earlier that characterize youth culture. Real life over appearance, presence, over connectedness. Our technologies are disembodying you. Our technologies are undermining your ability to be present in a fully human way. May I make a couple of examples? What if you show us, just for instance, you need to come up with your own plan, but I'm suggesting We all know from experience, if you don't make certain choices like this, then the the flood just flows. How are you going to use social media? What if you just, what if you made this radical decision? I'm only going to use social media to share substantial slash inspiring things. Otherwise, I will not use it. Just, just, just what, what if? Just think about that as a possible resolution. I'm not saying that that, that is the only answer, but we, we need to get to that level. As Aristotle saw, life is lived in the concrete. The practical action always comes down to the singular. You need to get into those details. How are you going to use social media? Social media, you don't need me to start quoting the studies, undermines and 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 lessens our sense of community of real connection. There's there, there's there's so many things to look at there that we're not going to look at. But but then how are we how are we going to tame that? Another couple of quick examples: the the silent times and silent places. 
Think in terms of stretches of time. Think in terms of physical places where I'm going to turn off all the, and you know how I'm using the term technology here. Yes, in the broad sense, a hammer is a piece of technology also. That's not the technology that I'm talking about, right? So we all know what we mean when we say technology. You're going to turn off the technology to have a space of being bodily, bodily present. Will it, be, will it be for several hours on the Lord's Day? Will it be for an hour or two at the end of the evening? Will it be in this room in the house? Will it be when you go out to dinner? Where and how will it be? And you will experience the deeper kind of connection, the deeper kind of presence. I challenge you, no one will do it for you. But this is the stuff that makes the real difference in friendship, a shared life together. My final suggestion to you, Prioritize friendship with the Lord. St. Thomas in quotation number nine, Christ is our wisest and greatest friend. There is St. Thomas Aquinas for you. The Lord Christ is your wisest and your greatest friend. And all of the principles of which we have spoken apply in spades to your relationship with him. And the incredibly beautiful gift is to the extent that we prioritize that friendship with him. That is a basis then for growing our friendships with other human persons. For one thing is sure, there is nothing richer the two human persons can ever share with one another than that they share that they both are seeking first to be friends with God. And I thank you very much for your attention. Well, I am happy to take questions or discussion, comments, disagreements, concerns, please. Good. Great, great question. I'm just going to, the, the question I'm just going to repeat for the microphone is, is what, it, um, what's the difference between doing philosophy and studying philosophy that I referred to earlier? Great. I love, I love the, I love the question. Um, I'm going to, I, I, I'm going to put it this way. Am I saying this? I'm, I'm not seeking to unduly criticize anybody. I think I'm just pointing to the way things are. When I say there are a number of people out there who are um, professional philosophers where their study of, they, they went into studying philosophy um, more as an anthropological interest. In other words, it's, it's, it's like another way of studying history, um, what's made history, those amazing animals called human beings, look at those amazing things they do. Here are all the different ways people have thought. Often, I think, in universities, when you take a philosophy class or an introduction to philosophy class, it takes the form of saying, here are what all these thinkers have said. Do we understand what Descartes said? Do we understand what Kant said? Are there any questions? Now we go on. This is studying philosophy. This is not in Socrates' 
Aristotle's terms, it's not doing philosophy because doing philosophy is fundamentally trying to discern what the truth of reality is. And you can study what the philosophers have said all day long and be the world expert and write, write lots of peer-reviewed papers on what various thinkers have said and how it influenced other thinkers. Indeed, in many ways, the, the realm of studying philosophy has become profoundly professionalized where you can flourish in the profession by being an expert in what so-and-so held and you need never make a single assertion as to whether what they said has any correspondence to reality or not. But philosophy is always about, in the original sense, and I'm saying, so in other words, I'm, I'm, other people will say against me, they'll just say, well, but that kind of philosophy is naive because you can't come to know reality in that way. And so you're, you're over here in a fairy tale. And so, and so there's different views. When I say the distinction between studying philosophy and doing philosophy, I mean doing philosophy is trying to, to grow in wisdom, trying to see especially the higher things, come to the truth and bringing your mind into conformity with the way things are. And so quick thing about, your, you said you see philosophy as being abstract. Look, at the end of the day, because the philosophers are always seeking to give an account for things, to give an account for things is, is, is quite a complex operation. We develop very complex concepts to, to express and capture subtle distinctions about reality because reality is very rich. And so sometimes in some of those dialogues of Plato, for instance, it's, it's, it can be, it can be hard to follow because it's what exactly was the definition? How does this notion relate to this one? It takes, it takes a lot of intellectual acumen and efforts to follow along. Oh my gosh. And this is so abstract. It's hard to picture what's going on. But for Socrates, for Plato, that was always in a project through making those distinctions to give an account for the way things are. And so that, and I, I'd say in their kind of philosophy, which is the kind of philosophy that I'm interested in and that St. Thomas Aquinas does, you always are using the technical terminology and the abstractions, which are necessary to have those concepts and the tools to express difficult points. You're always doing that for the sake of seeing the truth of reality. Yes, sir, please. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, very, very fine question, which I appreciate. Um, I will first of all say I'm, I'm not in a position to say for sure how much you know it is it, it is being addressed or not. My sense is it, it there is still interest in it. Um, probably not to the extent and degree as there was in the ancient world would be my sense. Um, so. I think there will always be an enduring interest in it. Um, and the behind your question, if and there's a, it's a good question, my mind's going a couple different ways. Let me, part of what you asked was, why am I going back as it were to there? I, I suppose at this point, I'm interested in a good account of friendship wherever I find it. Seems to me that Aristotle's account especially has endured. And it has endured, I think, 
because it best captures the reality that is friendship. That doesn't mean that it's that it, that it can't be improved upon in any way. It doesn't mean it's absolutely complete. And so to do kind of, and I like how you say it's a follow-up, in the spirit of my prior comments to the prior question, um, we, to, we want to philosophize about friendship. And I don't want to ever reduce that to well, what did Aristotle say about friendship? But to me, and, and please follow up as, as, you, as, as you wish, I would say, again, I, I like the opportunity to kind of come back to this good question of studying philosophy in, in, in say, particularly through here, we're emphasizing St. Thomas here in this lecture. St. Thomas, like his teacher Aristotle, always likes to go to the great thinkers before him to learn from them and to use their insight as a way, as a means to come to reality. It's never fundamentally about who said what, but they had this deep sense of be docile to those who have already made progress in seeing these things. So in the doing of philosophy, the studying of the history of philosophy has always been seen to be very important. So I suppose in, in, in some, my approach would be um, Aristotle's fundamental principles have stood the test of time. Um, and so it's, it's, I don't see any other kind of go-to terminology um, and distinctions that would help us better think about our lives. So that's where I go. That doesn't mean that there aren't some out there that I'm not aware of in the contemporary discussion. Am, am I, again, there's a lot in your question. Am I, am I addressing it reasonably? You want to follow up? Right, I, 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 I like, I, I very much like that. Well, I mean, there, there is, there's one other for sure that I would mention that I particularly love, um, and that's of Gregory Nazianzen and Saint Basil, um, both uh, Eastern fathers of the Church, and um, there's a famous reading. If you just look up, um, I think the letter that is written is Saint Gregory Nazianzen writing it about his relationship with Saint Basil, and it's it's transcendently beautiful, and it, it, and 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 it's it also it's also very much along the lines of Saint Augustine, right? Some of Saint Augustine's uh, terminology from the Confessions of you know my, my other self, of course, my other self is also Aristotle, but um, you know our, our two souls were as one. Um, a lot, a lot of that language is in the Gregory and Basil, um, and and uh, you know, likewise in Augustine. There, um, you know, that's a, that's a that's a that's a great. Uh, you know, when when you say what other, um, I tend to also go to examples in my personal life, right, of people I have seen, and so I think that, that that's a nice little um, uh, addition here of how. In, in our studies, a liberal education or going to these great texts is a great way to help develop our understanding, both in the philosophical principles and then also the images, right, from, you know, whether it's in Homer or whether it's in scripture, um, of, that we, in, in other pieces of literature, that we find these great friendships. Yep, that's great to kind of see them there. And that gives us the principles then to be discerning them in our own life. You know, was it my, was it my grandfather with somebody that he knew? Was it my uncle over here? Is it, you know, is it my teacher? So to be looking for that in our own lives, I think is important uh, part also of learning to find patterns for ourselves. But um, 
I'm going to think more about, um, okay, if someone just said, hey, what other you know, absolute go-to things are there in literature? Um, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to think more about that. And, you know, that, that, and now that, it's a worthy project there. Um, and, and, and I, I, I think we probably would find some in some women religious, um, you know, you know, you know, is it, of course, people like to bring up St. Clair and St. Francis as the possibility of a non-romantic friendship between a man and a woman, but then, you know, can you, can you go in there among the, you know, the poor Clares and, you know, find, find something else, uh, there among the religious, I'm sure that we can, and, uh, that's worth doing too. Any other questions? Comments? Yes, please. Okay, good. The line of you're never alone. I, I mean, um, uh, ultimately, I completely agree that the, the sense in which you most of all are never alone is that your divine friend is always with you. Indeed, amazingly, is holding you in existence, among other things. Um, but, but how about this? Here, I am happy to say I go to uh, my relationship with my wife and which for me, by the grace of God is the main example in my own, in, in something that I have done myself of having achieved something that, um, uh, is, is, is my prime example of a true friendship. Uh, not that, not that a marriage has to end up have being such a friendship. It's important to note, you can have a real marriage and not have the kind of virtuous friendship that we're talking about here, though it certainly is the goal. It certainly is very desirable. But the, to feel not, consider from this perspective, um, how a, a large part of being lonely is feeling that you're not understood. When you feel like someone doesn't understand how you're feeling, then you feel like you're alone in your feelings. So picture how, if you've ever been in a situation where you're having a conversation with a friend or someone that's trying to grow in friendship with, and your minds are just not meeting, and you don't feel that you can convey how you're feeling. You feel isolated from one another. To some extent, you just kind of feel like, what am I going to do? You know, he just, he just doesn't see what, what, what can I do that he doesn't, that, that he doesn't see. And it's just, it's an isolation versus to really see one another is a, a way of being together. And so I, 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 I'd go so far as to say this, my, I feel so understood by my wife that whenever I am, am, am feeling, because it, it, it's, it's kind of buffeting. What, what if, for instance, right now in giving this lecture, I said something wrong, which I may well have, and then you all were offended and you thought that I was actually, um, you know, anti, whatever it is. You, you, you thought that I'm a way that I'm not. That would be really hard for me. I'm like, no, 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 stop. You don't understand. But then, I mean, at, at the end of the day, I mean, what, what, what if nobody appreciated and saw me the, the truth of who I am? Think how you'd, you'd, it's almost like you'd start to wonder, am I right about myself in what I think I really am if it's not validated by someone else seeing it? But 
I mean, if, 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 if nothing else, I know that my wife knows. And in that way, she and I are together. Even if we're not together in place, there's any number of ways that friends can be together still at a distance through the amazing powers of intellect and will and memory and, and thinking of the other and willing to the other and feeling in some sense of that term, the knowing and the willing of the other. So I hope that just illustrates a little bit more. We have a profound human need to be seen, to be seen for who we are. That may present for consideration. That's going to be a big part of heaven. That, that, that God granted it be so at, at, at a key moment. It's a little daydream of mine that I share with you. And I think it's one rooted in reality or in supernatural hope in any case of eventually, maybe after a very long time in purgatory, John Cutterback comes into heaven and, and God himself says amidst the rejoicing, everybody, I just want to introduce to you John Cutterback. He's a good man. And I want you to know him. And I am seen. Seen for who I am. This is how humans, this is an essential, irreplaceable element of the thing I said earlier. There's living together and there's living together. For mercy's sake. What does it take to see? There's, there's people out there trying to get closer to one another. There's nothing you can do bodily. There's nothing you can do bodily to bring about a deeper human connection. The bodily always is a sign of the deeper things. And when it is, well, then, 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 then you got to, then you got, then you've got knowing in the biblical sense. Yes, please. <laughs> well, I, I, I like the question. I can't say I, I necessarily have, have perfectly conceptually grasped how you're expressing it. I, I, I certainly see where you're going there. And in, 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 in fundamentally, I'm going to say I'm very sympathetic. I, I like, I, I mean, just, 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 just a quick thought. Right? I mean, the, it, 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 it almost numbs the imagination to think of hell, to think of, of persons that were designed to live together and now they're together in some sense, but they're utterly not together. Again, it goes back to the incredibly rich and beautiful question. What does it take to bring persons together? So there's no such thing as friendship in hell. The, the, I mean, it, it's an interesting why. Well, this goes back to the fundamental Aristotelian principle of, of real connection is always rooted in real character real love. 
And, and, and so to, to the extent that we don't have real character, that we don't have real love, to that extent, we will always be being isolated. And so these are marks of the evil one, the, the, you know, that isolation, isolation, isolation is unhappiness, right? Alienation is unhappiness. It, it, and, and again, this key point of virtue, though, goes together with union, with being able to share. So, so I mean, that, that's the way I'm, I, I got more maybe abstract there than you, than you wanted to be, but I think that's the basis for your, for your, I mean, when you're feeling really alone, of course, the good news is you never are really alone. Right. And, um, the, the, the Lord is always with you. And may I just put it, put it this way. And this wasn't exactly what you're asking. It's everything is always part of a divine pedagogy. Pedagogy, you know, is the order of teaching. It, our, our dark moments are yet another way that our Lord is trying to draw us in. So sometimes in, you know, going marriage, going through dark times, it really is the case. Your relationship is stronger. So I just, the, when you, you feel like you're in a classic Christian point, you feel like you're farthest, but at that moment, our Lord is, is very close and is, and is drawing you to grow so that you'll be able to be more with him. You, this is a classic Christian principle of dark night of the soul. The only reason that the dark night of the soul is a Christian principle is because it's part of growing you to be able to be together. It's always about relationship. It's always about relationship. I'm going to stop there. Thank you very much.